This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Welcome to my little audio imaginarium. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Congratulations, you have found us. Welcome aboard. You're among friends. We are coming to you from the great white north, uh, where it's starting to feel that way, too, in the uh, the cozy confines of the Zoomer Radio Studios here in the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto and uh, broadcasting uh, to you from our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, and that is AM740 on the old amplitude modulation frequency uh, and FM uh, 96.7. Ian Robertson is uh, back. Our rockabilly friend is here twisting the knobs and the dials. And, of course, Albert Vinzel is also here. And it's Albert's birthday. Albert, happy birthday. Thanks, he says, in a very nonchalant way, as is his manner. Uh, he's a hard-working fellow, and we appreciate everything he does for us. Uh, L.A. Marzuli is hot on the trail of the Nephilim, and he's standing by to join us here on the Conspiracy, uh, Conspiracy Show in mere moments. L.A., of course, coming to Toronto in just a few weeks, and we'll talk about that and much more. Uh, Albert, I mentioned, is running our HOA again, Hangout on Air, and all you need to do is go to the uh, Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. Find the tweet at the top or near the top of the feed, and you'll see an HOA link. Just click on it, and you are in. You're in the uh, the star chamber, the inner sanctum, if you will. Uh, Albert and I have also posted the usual assortment of tantalizing tidbits and interesting stories up at the website at uh, strangeplanet.ca. Remember now, we've we've relaunched and rebranded the website. It's now strangeplanet.ca. And once you go there, just find the radio page. You scroll down. There's a TV page for our TV show. There's a radio page, a live event page. Just go to the radio page for The Conspiracy Show. Click on it. Uh, and up at the top, there's a slide carousel. Uh, and you'll see all these wonderful little uh, stories that we've posted. And if you aspire, for example, to becoming an astronaut... There's a how-to guide from Space.com, which includes some inside dope on NASA's selection process, which you might find interesting, so you can find out if you've got the right stuff. Uh, Here's another one. You can file this one under suspicions confirmed, perhaps. Uh, We've talked about this a lot on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, Fluoride. Uh, In fact, we also have produced an episode on fluoride for Season 4 of our television program, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, the potential dangers of fluoridating our public water supply. And there's a new study out of Harvard University uh, that says fluoride may cause a number of different uh, disorders. So you'll want to check out that as well. Uh, There's also an intriguing story about former CIA director John McCone uh, and whether or not he was part of the JFK assassination cover-up 
uh, and whether or not he perjured himself before the Warren Commission. So uh, those are just a few of the uh, stories posted in the slide carousel at strangeplanet.ca. My first guest will be joining me on stage Wednesday, November the 4th. It is fast approaching. It's at the Oise Auditorium, the University of Toronto, St. George campus. It's right there on Bloor Street, the Oise Auditorium, the Ontario Institute for Secondary Education. Um, And the live event is called As in the Days of Noah. We'll be talking about giants, the return of the Nephilim, the alien abduction phenomenon, and uh, understanding the trumpet days of Noah. L.A. Marzuli has penned eight books, including the Nephilim Trilogy, which made the CBA bestsellers list. He received an honorary doctorate for this series from his mentor, Dr. I.D.E. Thomas. Um, and he, his new series is On the Trail of the Nephilim. It's a full-color, oversized book which uncovers startling evidence that there's been a massive cover-up of what he believes are the remains of the Nephilim, the giants mentioned in the Bible. He's now working on another volume in the series, which promises to have even more incredible and revealing photographs and interviews. L.A. Marzuli, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm really good, Richard. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be here. My pleasure, and we're, we're, we're so looking forward to having you up here in Toronto in just a couple of weeks. And um, I'm guessing that uh, you'll also be talking about, I mean, you've been to uh, South America. Uh, uh, I mean, you're not just a, a, a theorist and a researcher. You get in there, you get your hands dirty, don't you? What did you go down there looking for, Peru specifically? Well, um, we first, what basically alerted me to this was someone sent me a video with Brian Forrester, uh, in what is what is I've been visited this this particular museum now numerous times the Paracas History Museum in Paracas Peru all these elongated skulls and they were just unbelievable and I contacted Brian and one thing led to another and uh, we flew down there that became the basis for um, Watchers six in the series we've got now have nine of those of the Watchers in the Watchers series but that trip to Peru in 2013 became the the nexus for uh, Watchers six. And it was absolutely incredible. I mean, almost a trip of a lifetime. Since then, I've been back uh, two other times, planning to go back again fairly soon. Uh, there's so much to see down there. And, um, yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I've, I've been to Ohio. I've been to Teotihuacan uh, in, in Mexico. The huge pyramids there, Corral, the, the, one of the oldest, in fact, the oldest pyramidal site in the Americas. Um, the Great Serpent Mounds in Ohio. Uh, the Circle Mound and the Octagon Mound Complex in Ohio. So, yeah, I mean, I'm out in the field a lot. Uh, it's really the only way a person, you know, reading books is great, reading data is great, seeing pictures is wonderful, but nothing beats being boots on the ground. Absolutely nothing beats it. No, that's true, absolutely. Uh, because then you can speak from a point of, of, of absolute credibility, which you can, of course. Now, sort this out, because there is some confusion. We have, of course, the mention in uh, in, in Genesis uh, about the fallen angels commingling with the daughters of men, uh, and then they created uh, this race called the Nephilim, and we, we, we also have mention in uh, a, a book which is part of the Apocrypha, uh, the Book of Enoch, talking about the Nephilim. So sort this out. Uh, differentiate between the fallen angels, the Nephilim, and um, the relationship to, say, the, the giants mentioned in the Bible. Well, it, it's really very interesting when we when we actually get into the biblical narrative. 
specifically the biblical prophetic narrative, what we see in a book, the first book, Genesis, in Genesis 3, chapter 3, we get this weird sentence, um, and it says this. There's, there's the people that are in that scene um, are the Most High God, El Elyon, Yehovah, uh, the fallen cherub, Hasatan, or Satan, as most people know him, and then Adam and Eve. Now, you know, some people out there are already rolling their eyeballs, you've got to be kidding me. But just bear with me. Here's what it says. It says, the seed of the serpent will be at enmity with the seed of the woman. He shall crush your head, you shall bruise his heel. It's the first prophecy in the Bible. And it's talking about the Messiah. And what that sets up is a seed war. We know that right from Genesis 3. You know, the seed of the serpent will be at enmity, at war, with the seed of the woman. He shall crush your head, crush the serpent's head, you shall bruise his heel. It, it's an unbelievable, uh, unbelievably pregnant passage of Scripture. What's even more astonishing is when we go to three chapters over to Genesis 6, we see the fulfillment, partial fulfillment of this, as the seed war is, is, in, full, is in full regalia, if I can use that word. It's full-blown. And we see... Uh, and we read about the unthinkable. The sons of God see that the daughters of men are beautiful. They desire them. They come to earth, and they take wives from whoever they wanted to. Uh, they impregnate these women, and the offspring are what is known as a hybrid being, the Nephilim. Again, the Nephilim are a hybrid being between the fallen angelic host of heaven and the women of earth. Um, I've written basically nine books that in some ways deal with it directly or indirectly, all centered around the Nephilim. And, of course, at the, at your, at the conference, which I can't wait to get up there and, and, and meet everybody up there and, and uh, spend the day one night only, but I'll be talking about uh, the Nephilim. I know I've only got about 90 minutes, and uh, it, the information will be, I'll be going very quickly because there's so much I want to share, so much, you know, and, and look, the slides themselves, the pictures are, are, are incredible. So if you're listening to this and you're in the area, man, come out to this. It's going to be a great conference, and, uh, you know, can't wait to share with the folks up in Toronto. But the Nephilim are the unholy byproduct, the unholy hybrid entity uh, between that, that marriage, if I can use that word, between the fallen angels, the fallen angels and the women of earth. Uh, and this is the reason for the flood of Noah. What we see, which is chilling to think about, is that this, this war continues, and continues right up until modernity. We know that the son of perdition, the Antichrist, will literally be, in my opinion, a modern-day Nephilim. He will be the offspring of the fallen cherub and some woman someplace on this planet. And I realize that sounds wacky, but that's what's going on, and I'm holding to it. Well, uh are are the Nephilim always uh, uh, giants? I mean, we 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 know about the the uh, Greek mythology, and we know about this, the Titans, uh, and just about every civilization, every culture on Earth has a similar tale. Uh, but I mean, you talk about these elongated skulls uh, that have been uncovered. How do they relate to the to, for example, a race of giants? Are are they the same thing? Well, remember the race of giants. We know. Um are definite, are, are definitely uh, occur, or let me, let me back it up. The race of giants that we first hear about in the Genesis 6 account um, happens in, in, in before the flood. After the flood, there's another uh, 
outbreak. There's another occurrence. Um, and that a lot of people want to argue that and say it didn't happen, but I believe it did. The passage of Scripture is very clear and says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, when the sons of God saw the daughters of men, went into them, had children by them, they became the great men of renown. What we're looking at, in my opinion, is some sort of a breeding program, which has gone on uh, in antiquity and continues uh, even into modernity with the hybrids that we are now seeing manifest on the planet. And I'll get to that in a second. Very interesting story here. But what, we're, what, what, what I would put forth or posit would be this, that the fallen cherub is attempting to make man in his own image. And when we actually get into later biblical accounts, yes, there are giants like Og or Og, king of Bashan, whose uh, bed might have been, he might have been as tall as 14 feet, and we don't know. But he's a really big guy. Goliath, somewhere between 9 and 12 feet. And a 9-footer is huge, okay? And of course, uh, we, Mo- get- Moses sent... Moses sent Joshua and his spies into Canaan to uh, to investigate, and they came back with reports of of, of uh, giants as well. Listen, uh, LA, we've got to take a time out. We'll come back, and we'll uh, continue to talk about uh, the Nephilim. And he is hot on the trail of ne- the Nephilim coming to Toronto Wednesday, November the fourth. LA Marzuli, my guest, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Do not go away. L.A. Marzuli is with us live from Los Angeles, and he'll be in Toronto Wednesday, November the 4th at the Oise Auditorium for the uh, live event, as in the days of Noah. Just go to the live events page at strangeplanet.ca, and all the information is there. You can order tickets there, phone numbers, everything you need. Uh, so, L.A., the these elongated skulls that you saw in... in I mean, they're on... Op- Nobody's hiding them, right? They're right there for public display in, in, in Peru. But how do we know that these – I mean, how do you di- differentiate between uh, what is perhaps a Nephilim skull? I mean, the, the, the product of a human-alien hybrid uh, – well, we say alien. We mean fallen angels. Uh, or, I mean, we know that cultures back then, the Mayans and so forth, they would, uh, they would, elo- they would elongate their skulls. Um, as part of a sort of a cultural practice, which is kind of interesting. What, what were they emulating? But how do you differentiate between what you believe is an authentic Nephilim skull and a human skull that has been elongated through different processes, you know, virtually from birth, as a cultural practice? Well, that, that's a great question, and, and here's the deal. We can't. We don't know. We can only speculate, and I make that very clear. Um, however... There are some anomalies in, in the elongated skulls which don't fit the normal human paradigm. For instance, the cranial capacity in some of the skulls is 25 to 30 percent larger. One. Two, um, many of the skulls show an absence of a sagittal suture, which would split the parietal plate into two, left parietal and right parietal. That's missing. Three, there's a lithograph from 1842 uh, showing uh, a fetus that was recovered from a mummy um, that was discovered. Uh, and when they opened up the mummy, they discovered that the, that the woman that was in there was mummified, was pregnant. So they wanted to see what the fetus looked like. So they went in, and lo and behold, there's a fetus from 1842. It's a lithograph of it. It's actually reproduced in my book with an elongated skull. Now, you can't elongate the skull of a child 
in the mother's womb. It's impossible. So there are, we're not sure what we're looking at. The Paracas people show up on the shores of Peru about 3,500 years ago, which fits the timeline of the conquest of Canaan, when Joshua and Caleb are pushing into what I would call Nephilim Central. There are giants there, but there are also other tribes of Nephilim which seem to have different genetic characteristics. For instance, the long necks is one of the uh, names that are attributed to one of the Nephilim tribes. So these coneheads, they're not giants. I get that. We have no idea what we're looking at. Preliminary DNA testing, and, and before everybody gets on their high horse about the DNA testing, you know what, folks? No one's taking skulls out of there. But some, some people, some researchers, uh, are taking small uh, bits of DNA uh, for testing, like a, a bone fragment, um, things like that. Uh, no, one, no one that I know is taking anything out of the country illegally. What I mean by that is, like, you know, entire skulls. But uh, I know that uh, Lloyd Pye, who passed away several years ago, yes. took out some small bone samples. And they were tested, and the mitochondrial DNA uh, didn't link up with anything. It was completely unknown. Now, um, immediately, geneticists and everybody else on the Darwinian side of the aisle will cry, oh, it must be contaminated, and that's why. And I get that. And that's why we're on the trail. Uh, we've got resources. We're desperately trying to get back down there, get permission. We will take multiple samples from multiple skulls and get everything tested and project the findings to the world. Um, these people, whatever they were, are extremely enigmatic. We believe that, that uh, in, or I, I personally believe, in the idea of diffusionism rather than isolationism. Uh, these are two uh, positions that archaeologists continue to fight over. Isolationism declares that people don't move around, that they're isolationists, that they stay in one place. Diffusionism says, nope, that's not the case. People are curious. They'll trade. They'll go through great lens to get a piece of flint, or some new technology from somebody else. I mean, the one that the Western civilizations all know is Marco Polo. But, you know, look, look at the explorers. Look at the, look at the uh, you know, Columbus, quote-unquote, so-called discovery of America. Meanwhile, there's about 6 million people living over here, or whatever. That figure's probably too high. But at least 3 million people are living in, in, the, in the Americas when Columbus comes over. So he, he discovered it for the, for the European culture, but he certainly didn't discover it. I digress. The bottom line is Thor Heyerdahl, uh, in two books, Kontiki and Ra, uh, proved that you could sail across, in Ra specifically, you could sail across the, uh, the Atlantic Ocean from, you could go out the delta in Egypt, the, the, del you know, the, uh, the Nile, del Nile River Delta there, uh, build a boat out of papyrus, throw a sail on that thing, go out the Mediterranean, and you wind up in Barbados without doing doodly squat, without any compass, without any knowledge of anything, the trade winds will blow you to Barbados. And this is our whole point. We believe that 3,500 years ago, when these Nephilim tribes were being annihilated by Joshua and Caleb, and that's all in the biblical narrative, that these tribes left the area. Some went northward, some hopped on, on makeshift boats, not rafts, boats, and not makeshift, I should, I should rephrase that, you know, handcrafted boats, and sailed into the Americas and settled it here. Isn't it interesting that Native Americans talk about these tall, six-fingered, red-haired red -haired giants that were in Milan, who were cannibalistic? This is exactly what we read in the biblical narrative. And over here in the Americas, 
we seem to have proof. Um, there's also an ongoing cover-up uh, with the Giants uh, and the Bones, and that, that continues, even, even with my findings, um, which, I'll, which I'll show you on November 4th, the cropped picture of the Giant, which should be in the picture, but it's not. It's been cropped. It's now, it was hanging up in the museum on Catalina. Since they've moved to the new, new museum, I don't know whether they, that picture is still there or not. Let me give you the backstory. A couple of years back, uh, Jim Watson, who, was, who lives over on the island, gave me a tip and said, look, they just found a cache of records. Uh, John Borgina, the former curator uh, of the museum, but then the curator of the museum in Catalina, uh, had discovered a cache of records that had been lost, basically. And these records were from none other than the primitive archaeologist uh, by the name of Ralph Glidden, who was employed by the High Museum between 1919 and 1921 to uncover artifacts and graves and what have you on the Channel Islands. The Channel Islands are a group of islands from Santa Barbara to San Diego on the west coast. Uh, the Catalina is right outside uh, of Los Angeles. I see it almost daily uh, from, from where I live in the Santa Monica Mountains. So... I'm in there. It takes me about eight months to get permission. I give a $1,000 donation. More than happy to give that. Uh, and they allow me in. I'm there alone uh, with John Borgina for 10 hours. Uh, and Jim Watson was there also, pouring over every photograph, every, every journal entry, everything. I read everything in 10 hours, okay? Looked at everything. Took uh, copious notes, lots and lots of pictures. I hit pay dirt within an hour. Because the first thing I asked for were the, photogra the photographs. And they brought out uh, these museum boxes, and in those museum boxes are Manila folders, and everything's been labeled, and the, the pictures are in the folders, some of them in, in plastic cases. And I, I began to pour over the pictures, and within a short time uh, had three or four pictures, which I consider pager, elongated skulls, six-fingered nine-footers, and the classic one, which was on the History Channel, uh, which they had me on as a guest, and I talked about my research with the Vieira brothers uh, for their, their season finale in search of a lost giant. They had nothing. I had the picture. I discovered the picture. It's my intellectual property. I'm the guy that, that, that found it. Nobody else did. I'm also the guy that had three people look at the picture, and uh, when I say three people, uh, three technicians look at the picture, digitize the picture, and based on artifacts in the picture, and Ralph's good height, known height of 5'8", were able to ascertain ascertain rather that the giant in front of Glidden was about nine feet. We rounded it down to about eight foot six, not to be sensationalistic. Most of them put it above eight foot nine. So we got basically we got a nine footer there. Okay, that's a lot bigger than Robert Waldo, Waldo, uh, Waldo the, uh, the 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 tallest man that ever supposedly lived, isn't it? Wait, say that again, Richard. I'm saying that the, the uh, I think that the tallest man that ever lived, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, is uh, uh, was a uh, Robert. I think it was Waldo or Wadlow from yeah, in yeah, Ohio. Yeah. So this 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 beats that, and of course he had, you know, m major medical implications, major problems. major medical issues. And the thing is, we found two skeletons out in Catalina that were, that were just around nine feet. One of them was six fingers. We found elongated skulls. All that's not supposed to be there. No. And here's the deal. I went public with this, you know, in my book, I'm a Trail of a Nephilim 2, November 4th. I will be talking about this. You'll see the pictures for yourself. It's going to be a great 90 minutes. Can't wait to do it. The bottom line is when I went back to the museum with my business partner and the producer or director of Watchers, Richard Shaw, we went to the museum to film me in the museum. 
Now, the Ralph Gooden display had, for the most part, been taken down and reduced in size from what was the whole museum, the old museum, to one small room in the old museum. And the picture, which I had discovered, which until I discovered it, was in a manila envelope, had never seen a lot of day, the public certainly didn't see it, was now up on the wall, blown up, probably by two foot by one foot, maybe a little bit bigger than that, uh, two feet wide, 18 inches uh, tall, that type of deal. And there it was, except, except they had cropped the giant out of the picture. <laughs> so this obfuscation continues even even until the present day. Well, when these, when these discoveries were made, and, and there is a paper trail, when you go back to the New York Times, the archives, and uh, you, you read accounts uh, uncovering in these burial mounds, I mean, we've, we've talked on this program about Abraham Lincoln in a speech at Niagara Falls referring to yes. the giants in those mounds, but there is an actual paper trail. You have archaeologists uh, writing to museum directors, uh, I believe even the Smithsonian, saying we have found these things. So, but we have the paper trail, and, and yet we have no, uh, no large you know, skeletal remains on exhibit anywhere. Uh, I mean, this it would have to be a, con- a conspiracy of monumental uh, um, you know, uh, respects in order to keep something like this quiet. I mean, who... Who ultimately is making the decision that these things will not be shown to the public? Well, I have no idea. Only that someone somewhere is attempting to control the information, which is incredibly unscientific and totally disingenuous. Uh, There's a party line, which is Darwinism, and uh, Darwinism basically states that there is no supernatural. And the giants and the remnants of the giants and the artifacts of the giants seem to point to a supernatural incursion by entities from another world, i.e. fallen angels. And this is what's at stake, and this is why it's, it's basically a, I don't want to use the word a war of ideologies, but it, it certainly is a contest between what paradigm, what worldview, best answers are origins, and it certainly isn't Darwinism, in my opinion. Well, the other problem with, with the existence of giants uh, millennia ago is, uh, as you mentioned, with, with evolution, uh, it runs contrary. It doesn't, it doesn't fit because we should be starting out shorter and getting taller, according to natural selection and so forth, and yet we have records of nine-foot specimens, and uh, that doesn't square, does it? Well, it, it, and, and this, this is part of the problem with it, yes, that, that what we're showing, um, the evidence in my books, which is, in my opinion, it becomes, in, you know, incontrovertible at, at some point. You just, you know, here's the evidence, look for yourself, you tell me what's going on. And, you know, you can try to dismiss it, uh, and most people that dismiss it have never examined the, the evidence. So they think they know what they know, but they don't know it. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And that's the bottom line. And many people that, look, that are looking or that just dismiss this have never done their homework. Um, there's, the evidence is overwhelming that there were giants in the Americas. Uh, the Mayans, the Incas talk about giants. It's, it's a global phenomenon. It's happened everywhere. Um, I was just on a phone call with a very interesting individual, um, and I can't really get into this. This was tonight, though, Richard. Um, and as this unfolds, I'll be talking more about it. This man wants to come on the record because uh, he has information, um, and that's about all I can say, but um, of a very large, very large giant 
that was uh, discovered fairly recently. And uh, that's all I can say about it. Um, uh, the, the, the forces that went up against it killed it, so it's no longer alive. Uh, he estimated it well over 15 feet tall. All right. When we come back, L.A., I, I want you to put something to rest for me that has sort of confounded me for many years, uh, and that is, you know, based on my limited understanding of Scripture, and that is something I've never been able to wrap my heads around, my head around, and that is uh, how you can create a hybrid from fallen angels. I think of angels, I think of demons as being spirit. Is it possible that they could uh, create hybrids with humans? Can they mate with humans? We'll talk about that and much more. L.A. Marzuli, my guest, hot on the trail of the Nephilim, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Fallen Angels with L.A. Marzuli coming to town Wednesday, November the 4th at the Oise Auditorium. I'll just go to the live event page at strangeplanet.ca. Uh, L.A., uh, explain to me how angels, and I think of them as being spirit, essentially, um, how they could create, and we're talking fallen angels now, how they could create hybrids. Is it possible for fallen angels to mate, to to uh, procreate with humans? Well, it, it's a great question, and, and no one has sat down uh, and interviewed a fallen angel um, that I'm aware of. Uh, we only know from the biblical narrative, which states that in the days specifically not only in, the, in, the, in Genesis 6, but in the Apocryphal book, you mentioned it earlier, the book of Enoch, um, there's, a, there's a term which my friend Russ Dizdar uses uh, quite often, and it's, and it's a Greek term called uh, metaschismatosai. Metaschismatosai. And what that means is the ability to shape-shift into whatever, whatever you desire, whatever you want to become, that's what you can appear as. Uh, we also know from the biblical narrative that apparently that's true, that um, we know that Satan can even appear as an angel of light, which means that that's not his true appearance. That's metaschismatosai. He can change at will into something else. Um, that may be what we are looking at. Look, here's the bottom line, Richard. You know, and I'm not afraid to say I don't know when I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, you know, I've never sat down with an angel, either a good one or a fallen one, and been able to interview. Frankly, I wouldn't want to interview a fallen one. I probably wouldn't make it through the interview. But, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, these questions are, are very interesting, um, and they're certainly perplexing, because it makes one wonder how it happens, how the genetic information is transferred. But the biblical narrative is clear, the book of Enoch is clear that they took wives from whomever they wished, and that, that in the biblical sense they go into them, and which is, and it says this in the Genesis six passage, which is, you know, just incredibly bizarre. You know, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also um, afterwards, when when the sons of God, um, you know, saw the daughters of men uh, and, and went into them. Um, you know, what, what, what are we to make of that? I mean, it's, it's just, it's really extremely bizarre. So the, the idea here is that the, biblical narrative states. You, you mentioned the flood, and the idea here is, if I'm understanding it correctly, is 
that the human gene pool was so contaminated, if you will, uh, with the Nephilim and hybrids, and only one family, uh, and that would be Noah's family, were not uh, touched by uh, the fallen angels. So they were allowed to survive. So God decided to chlorinate the gene pool. But even after the flood, the Nephilim returned. Is that correct? Well, that's, that's what I believe. We call that the second, third, and fourth accursions. Um, and I just want to go back another question. Listen to verse 4. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that. This will answer both questions. When the sons of God, the fallen angelicos, came in unto the daughters of men, and they bear children by them. That is a, that's sexual intercourse. There's no way around that. That is sexual intercourse. Now, how it happens, you know, we don't, we don't, need, we don't need to talk about that, because we all know how it happens. Um, sperm is meeting ovum, and we all know how that works. And, you know, the, again, I, I rely on Metaskitz Monsai. They're, perhaps they're shape-shifting uh, to look like men, or perhaps, and Paul gets into this later, some, have, some people have entertained angels without knowing that they were angels. So, you know, something's going on here. We don't have all the answers. Some of this stuff is just, I mean, you want to talk about conspiracy stuff. It's cloaked from us. You know, it, and figure it out. We've been here for thousands of years, and we're no closer now than ever before. you got to remember something, that when, when, this, when this is written, Moses is writing this thousands of years after the events of the flood. He's on Mount Sinai. God's dictating. He's writing. So why would he write um, that there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that? Why would he include and also after that if, he, if, if unless there was another incursion? You get what I mean? He's writing. Absolutely. And, of course, we have, after the flood. we have Jesus saying in Matthew, uh, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be. In the final days, we'll come back. Uh, one final segment re, uh, remains with L.A. Marzuli. We will find out what does the modern-day UFO abduction phenomenon have to do with all of what we're talking about. The fallen angels, the Nephilim. Stay with us. And uh, we are talking with L.A. Marzuli, who is coming to town Wednesday, November the 4th. As in the days of Noah is the live event at the Oise Auditorium, Wednesday, November the 4th. Uh, and you can click on uh, strangeplanet.ca, go to the live events page uh, for more information on how to get tickets. So let's, um, let's connect the dots here. This hum- human-fallen-angel uh, hybrid program uh, that took place uh, prior to the days of Noah, after the days of Noah, uh, what does that have to do with the alien abduction phenomenon? Well, we think it has everything to do with the alien abduction, and I'll tell you the story that I was going to tell you and mention, I think, in the first segment. Um, This was told to me by by Pastor Mike, Um, but before I get to that story, I will say this, that we believe that these abductions are real, that people are physically taken, sperm is taken from the men, ovum is taken from the woman. It is not delusion, although some of it can be. It's, It's a mixed bag. It's not either or, it's both and. And those who would limit it to one, I think, um, uh, don't understand the Genesis 6 narrative, or and frankly, the Jer- Genesis 3 narrative. And certainly when they, when they come to the words of Yeshua, as you quoted in the last segment, that'll be like the days of Noah when the Son of Man returns. They don't understand that, with all due respect. 
So what we've seen, and we show this in Watchers 7 and 8, we have a man who claims to have been abducted. He claims to have had an implant. Well, we do a whole series of tests on him. Uh, X-rays, CAT scans, Gauss meters. This guy's got this implant in him. It's a metallic implant. It's giving off a reading on a Gauss meter of 8.0. It's hardcore science. Okay, something is there. It's giving off a radio frequency of 330 hertz. What the heck is that about? It shows up on a stud finder. It shows up on an ultrasound machine. The day we go to take the thing out, there are three camera crews. There's 15 people and watching it on an HD monitor in a waiting room. There's nurses and doctors and all this other stuff going on. And Richard Shaw and I are there. We're filming the whole thing. The patient's there. We figure it's going to take 20 minutes. An hour and 20 minutes goes by. The doctor, Dr. Matriciana, cannot find the object on the ultrasound machine, whereas two weeks prior, the pre-op, when we went in there to make sure it was everything was copacetic, he found the object within less than two minutes, and I'm not exaggerating. An hour and 20 minutes has gone by. Richard, I said one prayer, and it was this after an hour and 20 minutes, and I prayed because I needed to take authority over the room because I had a little tap on the shoulder from the guy upstairs who said, L.A., you need to take authority over this and do it now. And so I did. The prayer was simple. It was just this. Father, if there are forces which are cloaking this device, I pray that you would break their power and do it soon. Less than two minutes after that prayer, the object just appears on the ultrasound machine. Everybody goes, whoa, what's that? So the object is real. We took it out. Um, the moment we took it out, it stopped sending signals, the whole thing. We, we, we examined it under an electron, electron scanning microscope um, at, at SEAL Lab with an EDX. A feature to it which tells you what it's made from. Um, the man was abducted, okay? Uh, probably sperm was taken from him, although he doesn't remember that. There is a breeding program. They are trying to create hybrids. Now, here's the deal, and I, I keep hearing more of these, Richard, and they're chilling. Pastor Mike is out for what he, what's called a prayer walk. He's in a park-type setting, a jogging trail, and he's just walking and praying. It's a great way to, you know, kind of work out and pray at the same time. When I run in the morning, that's what I do. And uh, in the distance, he sees a very tall woman running, very athletic-looking, running towards him with striking blondish white hair tied up in a ponytail. Nothing unusual, except she's extremely tall, 6'3", 6 6 um, But, you know, female basketball players are that tall. So nothing unusual about it, but he's on guard. For some reason, his spider senses are tingling. As she gets closer, um, he begins to pray against her because... He can feel the presence of something very, very evil. Uh, when she's about 20 to 30 feet away, he begins to notice her eyes, which are pale blue, very pale blue. And as she gets about 15 feet away, her eyes change from pale blue to solid black. Now, not the white, just the pupils went solid black, okay? Completely black. Oh, dear. He began to verbally, out loud, rebuke her at that point. So now he's in spiritual warfare mode. He's like... He knows what he's dealing with here. He's not, you know, he's not, not caught off guard. He knows exactly what he's dealing with. He begins to rebuke her and tell her in no uncertain terms, any curses or hexes or vexes against me, my family will not. And he's like praying against her. As she runs by him, she turns and growls at him. Now, if that's not a hybrid, I don't know what is. Uh, I don't know what is. Uh, the thing is, Richard... That's not the only one we're getting. We're getting not a lot of them, but there's more than one. Let's put it that way. Well, Dr. David Jacobs, uh, and I believe Bud Hopkins also was in on the Roper poll. They commissioned this poll. 
uh, to try and get a handle on how many uh, Americans may be uh, abductees. And I, I can't remember the, uh, the figure. It's something like 3%, I believe, of the total population. Well, what's, 300, what's 3% of uh, 300 million Americans? Uh, that's, what is that? Uh, 10% would be 30. So it's about, th- um, what is that, 9 million? Something like that? Well, yeah, I mean, 300 million people, so 10%, you know, I mean, just, just do the math that way. Right. It's a lot of people. So if that's the case, I mean, they're not, it doesn't seem like they're creating a hybrid of elongated skull people or, or you know, giants that are eight or nine feet tall. But then we have this whole RH negative thing, which is kind of interesting. The, uh, the um, you know, we, if evolution is correct, we're all supposed to have RH, uh, the protein marker in our blood. And then we have about 10% of the population which is an interesting figure, kind of matches up with the Roper poll, 10%, which is RH negative, which might be evidence that, you know, a certain portion are hybrids. What do you make of that? Well, I've heard the whole RH negative deal, and um, I think it's very easy to start, once you get into that, you start building a case. You know, anybody with RH negative is uh, has Nephilim blood in them. Um, so I'm, I'm very careful with, with that type of information. Um, on the other hand, when I hear stories from from Mike and from this other woman who had an encounter with, with can only be a hybrid being, um, you know, it's something's going on here. And as Dr. Jacob's new book, uh, th- you know, they walk among us, and it's a very chilling account. I'm, I'm almost finished it now, and uh, you know, he's talking about the integration of the hybrids in the society. Um, and I, I agree with them. I think it's happening. I don't think there's like hundreds of thousands of them, but I think they're starting. I think the black-eyed kids that we discussed in our Watchers 5 um, DVDs is sort of the avant-garde, sort of, you know, probing, probing uh, the defenses, checking out, well, what's it like when these guys show up? And, and this is why, look, it's getting really, really weird I mean, it is. And, um, <laughs> tell me about it. This is just one more, one more in the signs. I, I, I don't have to tell you this, but there, you know, there is this huge chasm uh, within the UFO community, if I can call it that. I hate calling things communities, but let's use that term. You have those people, uh, and I, you and I are in a, in a similar camp. Uh, we have a very different way of looking at the whole UFO, alien, or ET phenomenon. We don't, I don't consider them to be ETs. I consider them to be interdimensional, demonic. Uh, but that does not fly well at a lot of the, you know, the big UFO conferences and so forth because you have that. It's a very large contingent. It's probably the majority uh, that believe that uh, these ETs are enlightened, spiritually enlightened uh, uh, beings here to save us from ourselves and 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 uh, reform us before they can welcome us into the cosmic neighborhood. Um, what do you say to the to that that group that are out there listening and pashawing everything they're hearing right now? You're kind of fading in and out, but I, I I got the gist of what you're saying. Basically, what I say is, look, that we're not that far apart. Um, if you substitute as the ancient alien theorist. Uh, ancient astronaut theorists on ancient aliens say uh, ad nauseum. Um, we were visited here by ancient, um, an ancient, you know, ancient astronauts thousands of years ago. All we need to do, we all know something's going on on the planet. We all know that the pyramids. Well, when I say we all know, Zawi Hawass doesn't believe this, 
but the Great Pyramid was not built by the Egyptians. Sat Sebamon was not built by, by the Inca. I mean, it just wasn't. Um, that Those huge megalithic stones weighing 120 tons each from a quarry 40 miles away were not carved and, and schlepped by llamas by the Inca. It didn't happen. Something is going on on the planet. We've been visited. And all one needs to do, that's what I mean. We're not that far apart. What's interesting is the, the biblical prophetic narrative states exactly what is going on, which is the fallen angelic host of heaven. When you say angel, that people immediately have these preconceived notions. Throw them out the door. These are powerful, powerful entities. And when they appear, most people are paralyzed, do face plants, can't even function. And we see this exactly happening in the UFO abductee phenomenon. So I'm, what I'm saying is it's not that, we're not that far apart. Instead of saying ancient astronaut, just substitute um, fallen angelic host. You know, that's, and in fact, it, what I what I'll do is if, if I'm at a MUFON conference, which is very rare, but sometimes they have me in, I'll just say, look, let's just call them the intruders because that's what they are. You know, and and, a, and in a classic sense, a fallen angel is an extraterrestrial. So we're talking about the same thing because in a classic sense. The fallen angel's home is not the earth. Therefore, it is an extraterrestrial. A good, excellent point. Listen, you are going to blow some minds, uh, L.A. I can't wait. Can't to... wait to get up there, Richard. <laughs> wow, you were going to. I think we're going to have to have some, uh, maybe some uh, counselors standing by on the sidelines because you were going <laughs> to, you were going to roil some, some realities and redefine some reality uh, when you uh, appear on stage uh, again. As in the days of Noah, Wednesday, November the fourth, Oise Auditorium. Go to strangeplanet.ca and the live events page. L.A. Always a pleasure. Uh, great talking to you again. Can't wait to uh, to see you again on the uh, the 4th of November. Great, looking forward to it Richard. Take care. All right. When we come back there'll be more good stuff. I can tell you that. The website again strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. S Y because I love you R E double T. As always, follow the truth. Live from Toronto, Canada. Earth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Well, thank you for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your taxi, your RV, camper, diner, your cabin in the woods. A big hearty welcome to those of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM. Also, to those of you streaming us live on the internet at zoomerradio.ca, or on the Zoomer Radio app. It's a free download. It's very cool. It's very retro. Uh, it looks like a transistor radio. Uh, and the, uh, the Conspiracy Show app as well. Or you may be listening in uh, via the podcast at iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, and TalkZone.com. Uh, and, of course, uh, to all of you listening in on one of our affiliates in the United States, wherever and however you're listening to The Conspiracy Show, welcome. And it is so good to be here. We have a murder mystery for you tonight. <clears throat> Excuse me. A, uh, a British lawyer uh, who was active in the Conservative Party in Great Britain for about a decade. Uh, he started out investigating the mysterious circumstances surrounding the death of his best friend and uncovered a netherworld of illegal arms deals, political slush funds, high-level corruption, and Britain's 30-year secret role as America's hired gun. It's uh, real James Bond stuff, and we'll get to that in just a few moments. Uh, just a reminder 
that season four of my television program, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, will debut soon. It's coming soon, folks. I can tell you that. Uh, across Canada on Vision TV. And as soon as I have the uh, the actual air date and the schedule, I will let you know. I'm just telling you, brace yourself. Get ready. <laughs> we have been working around the clock uh, to deliver the episodes uh, and are in the process of delivering them. Uh, I think... I think they're all just about uh, delivered now, just about finished. Uh, I know I'm just shaking off the effects of jet lag (laughs) as we speak. Uh, Of course, you know, the first three seasons uh, are in high rotation, as they say in the radio business. They're uh, on Vision TV. I'm not even sure at this point what date. uh, It might be Thursday nights. I'm not sure. But it's just check the schedule. Listen, there's so much great stuff on Vision. Just keep watching, right? All the great Britcoms and all that stuff. And eventually, you're going to see my ugly mug <laughs> staring back at you, and that'll be The Conspiracy Show. And uh, there's three seasons worth there. So you can watch those and get ready for season four. And uh, speaking of seasons one and two, uh, I know those two, at least, seasons one and two, the complete seasons, are now available for sale or rent on uh, Amazon.com in, in uh, HD. And continuing along uh, with uh, the TV show, we just sold the program in Thailand and the Czech Republic. So there you go. We're spreading our tentacles around the world. Uh, Don't forget to visit the website, uh, strangeplanet.ca. All right. Uh, Jeffrey Gilson uh, is with us. He is originally from the United Kingdom, though he's now living in the great state of North Carolina. And uh, he was just, you know, a regular guy working in a law firm in England when suddenly his best friend turns up dead. Uh, an apparent suicide, however. Jeffrey really didn't believe the official story uh, about his good friend's death, so Jeff began asking questions, and he really hasn't stopped asking questions. His search ultimately led him to a world of spies, money laundering. Uh, Bush Sr., Margaret Thatcher... Uh, spy agencies from around around the world, including, of course, the Central Intelligence Agency. And it all sounds like a James Bond movie, but this is real, real life. Uh, In November 1988, Hugh John Simmons, Margaret Thatcher's favorite speechwriter and the author's best friend, boss, and political mentor, turned up dead in a woodland glade a few miles from their sleepy suburban hometown 20 miles west of London. And so to learn why his best friend was murdered, Jeffrey Gilson um, journeyed into the dangerous world of international arms uh, that explains much of contemporary history. It's a quest for truth, which after 20 years of high-risk adventure, uh, coupled with uh, painstaking research and firsthand interviews, uncovered the ugly truth that for some 30 years, the various governments of Great Britain have loaned their country's military and intelligence services to the United States, allowing presidents from Reagan to Obama to pursue their covert foreign and military policies without the encumbrance of congressional oversight. James Bond stuff indeed. Jeffrey Gilson, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm very fine. Thank you, Richard, for having me on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, My pleasure. And uh, the book, Maggie's Hammer. Uh, Let's let's start off. Give us a, a few more details about... Uh, your friend Hugh John Simmons. I mean, we mentioned that he was Margaret Thatcher's favorite speechwriter, uh, and he was your best friend. How did the two of you meet, and and, and how did he become 
uh, so close to uh, to the Iron Lady? Well, um, we, we both uh, were born and raised in the same small town in, in England. Although I, I sound British and, uh, and, and indeed am British, I'm, I'm, I have dual nationality. I'm both British and American. My uh, parents are American. My father, father's family is from Boston. My mother's family is from Chicago. Um, I was born and raised in, in a small town just west of London, about 11,000 people. If you imagine uh, the Hollywood set with the, the duck pond and the village green and the Tudor houses, that's the sort of uh, the, the village I grew up in, 11,000 people. Hugh lived in the same town, a little bit older than me. Um, we were both interested in politics, and that's how we met up. Um, at the time, British conservative politics. Um, I might have slightly changed since then. I'm kind of more center-left now. Um, and there we were in, in 1988, both of us lawyers. I was working in his firm, uh, working our way towards being members of parliament, um, part, of, part of Margaret Thatcher's British Conservative Party. He um, was somewhat more active than I was. I, I, I won't say I was small town, but I wanted to be a member of parliament. He was, he, was, he was headed for the glittering prizes. He was going to be in government, very definitely. He had... Um, uh, considerable standing within the party. He wasn't really on, on the public radar yet because he hadn't yet become a member of parliament. But Margaret Thatcher came to power in 1975, very much the outsider. And so she had um, um, various platforms in, in order to become leader of the party that weren't the usual ones. And uh, Hugh founded a grouping within the Conservative Party called the Selstrom Group. doesn't really matter. But it was through that that she um, launched her bid for leadership so he was quite close to her. He wrote speeches for her at the beginning, and that, that closeness um, continued uh, when she became leader of the party. Um, and indeed, that became very important, because this is how he was recruited, uh, according to my investigation, in 1984, to undertake this clandestine work for her, primarily because of that close contact with her. So there we are. It's 1988, and out of the blue, uh, in November of 1988, I get a call from the local police, and... He was dead in a car in a local woodland glade. Um, there was nothing immediately suspicious about the circumstances that I could work out. I'm, one of the most important aspects of this whole investigation is that, although I'm a lawyer, um, I'm not a law enforcement official, I'm not a spook, I'm not a trained investigator. I'm pretty much, other than the fact that I was a lawyer, an ordinary guy. Well, my best friends just turned up dead, and it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, we immediately discovered that there was some $7 million missing from the client's account for the law firm to which only he had access. And whereas the authorities thought, well, okay, money's missing, he's dead, open and shut case, it didn't make any sense to me. The theft didn't make any sense to me. His killing himself didn't make any sense to me. Um, and not always for the best reasons. I mean, I've been grilled by one or two interviews who say, well, why is that the case? Because he was an ambitious sort. I, 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 throughout my life, I've been sort of, uh, found myself friends with people who are, rogues. Um, and he was a bit of a rogue. He was ambitious, he was highly charged, he was not the sort of person who would um, go, into, go out to Woodland Glade and commit suicide. Now, I'm not saying he's not the sort of person who would have done something wrong, but he's the sort of person if he got caught, would not go to Woodland Glade. He'd get on a plane and go to Brazil. Right. And what was, so, the, what was the, 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 uh, the, the stated, the official cause of death, was it? Uh, um, the official cause of death was uh, uh, carbon monoxide poisoning in the car. And um, 
How do you do that in the in the glade? And normally you would do that in a in a in a garage, uh, and you cl- you you yeah, close Richard, the door. Yeah, Richard, nothing nothing terribly sinister about that. Um, I, I'm not saying it's normal, but actually, quite a lot of people go out to woodland glades in Great Britain and kill themselves. Uh, indeed, it's kind of ironic and sad, but um, a number of other deaths of a similar nature occurred after that on a sort of copycat basis. Uh, people saying, well, wow, I hadn't thought of that as a way to kill myself. It was very sad, but um, he did actually cause a bit of a rash of um, suicide um, by monoxide poisoning. There's nothing terribly unusual about that per se. And at the time, I, didn't, I wasn't in a position to do anything like ask for special autopsies or anything. He was cremated, which was also not unusual. The unusual nature of his death only became truly apparent much later on um, as I uh, pursued um, various leads. But at the time, it just didn't make sense. It didn't make sense that he would kill himself. It didn't make sense that he would steal the money. He had a hugely successful law firm. He was setting up successful businesses. He was a hiccup away from being a successful politician. Why would he steal the money? Why would he commit suicide? Um, however, at the time, um, the Law Society, which was the equivalent of the National Bar Association and the police, were investigating. Um, I thought they would find the money. I, I wasn't sure what would happen, um, but I assumed they would, they would find the answer, and, and that would be that. However, six months to a year afterwards, they just stopped investigating. They hadn't found the money. Um, they just stopped investigating. The next thing I know is um, they are, uh, there are literally news, uh, articles appearing in national newspapers in Great Britain uh, accusing me of being involved in some way. Um, I had meanwhile moved to America... Um, I wanted to start a new life. I'd cleared this with the police, the law society. There was no suspicion. The suspicion began after they couldn't find the money. So I basically had to get on a plane and come back to England and turned up on their doorstep. I did a lot of turning up on people's doorsteps. Um, I was listening to your last interview, and one of the things that uh, you said, which is absolutely true, is don't believe what people tell you. Don't believe what people write you. Um, If you want to find the truth, you've got to use primary sources. You've got to Put your boots on, go out, and talk to people. Um, otherwise, you have no credibility. You're just relying on what somebody else has written. So, uh, so, so in, in many in, – in, in, in large measure, was this investigation uh, that you took on not only in an effort to get to the, the bottom of what happened to your, your good friend, uh, but also to, uh, to redeem your own um, reputation? Yes, that's, that's, that's very fair. Um, um, we will get into some of the places that I, uh, I believe that I've uncovered later in the show, but um, I never set out to, to discover an expose. I wanted to find out what happened to my friend. He had three small children. I was like an uncle to them. But at the same time, yes, I was, I was trying to clear my own name. Um, and that's a pretty powerful reason do you want to find the truth? I'll say. Two uh, very good reasons. Jeffrey, listen, we're going to take a time out. We'll come back okay. and continue to delve into uh, this expose. Very James Bond-like indeed. Maggie's Hammer, Jeffrey Gilson is with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. We are with Jeffrey Gilson, uh, who is the author of Maggie's Hammer, an expose uh, which basically follows his journey as he investigated the supposed suicide uh, of his uh, dear friend, 
who was a the favorite speechwriter uh, of Margaret Thatcher, British Prime, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, and this led him into a um, into a world of illegal arms deals, political slush funds, high level corruption, British and Britain's a thirty year secret role as America's hired uh, gun. Uh, so. Because we don't have, uh, you know, the full three hours that, that this deserves, uh, we have to sort of, you know, just hit the high notes here. Uh, when did you start to? When did the uh, the trail really start to get hot for you? And when did you start to piece things together and really did well, find out who your friend really was? Basically, in the summer of 1989, um, I, as I said, I was um, articles started appearing in the national British newspapers saying lawyer flees to America which was me, um, I contacted the Law Society. They said, well, we can't find the money, so we're looking for accomplices. You top the bill. So I got on a plane, came back to England, which um, I discovered, um, among many other things, um, if, you, if you work outside the box, if you think outside the envelope, m- people get very nervous about this. Um, I requested a meeting with the Law Society. There were about eight of them on one side of the table, me on the other. They were a little shifty about why I, wanted, why, why I was there. I said, well, I'm trying to find out some answers. During the course of this interview, it it slips out that they can't find the $7 million, but oops, they might have found $15 million that wasn't supposed to be there at all. And that was the point at which I realized something else was going on. I had no clue what something else was going on. Um, But their investigation wound down. When their investigation wound down, the lead investigator met with me privately, and he was very frightened. And then... Fear is something that I, that I came across a lot in this. And I said, he wouldn't explain why he was frightened, but he, would, he wanted to meet with me. And he was very cagey, and eventually he let slip um, that it wasn't just $15 million they'd found. They found in various bank accounts um, monies totaling between 30 and $150 million. Um, and as soon as that, they had found this money, their investigation was shut down. This gentleman later left the firm that he was working with and disappeared into the into the depths of Surrey um, and, and won't speak to me anymore. Um, he is a very frightened man. Um, clearly something was wrong at this stage. I then met with his father, Hugh, Hugh Simmons's father, John, with whom I stayed in contact until he died in 2003. And um, he, this is a man with his head very firmly screwed on. He was a former president of the British Institute of Electrical Engineers, not given to flights of fancy. But he wanted to meet with me, and I met with him, and he said... There's not very much I can tell you, but I can tell you this. I have been approached by two gentlemen of very considerable credibility, which in Great Britain probably means bureaucrats or spooks. Two gentlemen of very considerable credibility who have said to him, John Simmons, that um, the money was taken out of Hugh Simmons' bank account uh, in order to finance an operation that Hugh was engaged in with British intelligence. Well, this didn't completely come as a surprise to me. While he was alive, he had mentioned that he was with British intelligence. But Richard, this is kind of like the way people say in the bar, you know, I used to be with the SEALs. I could tell you some things, but then I'd have to kill you. Right, right, and, right. It's good know, bar talk, exactly. I took it, yeah, I took it with a pinch of salt, and sometimes things would happen around him. He'd meet people, and I was like, Hugh, why is this going on? Why am I here? And he'd say, because I want you one day to be my insurance policy, which kind of turned out to be true. Um, but at the time, I didn't... I didn't make much of it, but when John Simmons, a man of credibility, said that to me, I said, okay, we've now got a lot of money, we've now got tales going on about British intelligence, um, it's time to, um, to look into this. 
there was a name that Hugh had mentioned of somebody who lived in Glasgow, and that was the only lead I had to take from uh, from them. This guy has an incredible name, like most of the aspects of the story, um, something you just can't make up. His name is Reginald von Zugback de Sug. And you can <laughs> oh, Sounds like him. a villain from, a, from I Spectre. I know, but you can Google him on, on um, uh, no, you can Google him on Google. And I went to meet him, and I, I, as with, with so many of the characters in this story, um, I wanted to meet him face to face. I wanted to grill him. I wanted to ask some questions and find out what he knew. Um, good tip for people who are thinking about pursuing stories that might end up with spooks do not turn up on their doorstep unannounced. It makes them very nervous. Um, <laughs> a rookie mistake, book, Jeffrey, a rookie mistake. <laughs> the details are in the book Maggie's Hammer, but let's just say it involved car chases and I got shot at. Um, eventually, after a couple of weeks, he started talking to me, which is about as surreal as it gets in this whole story. And he confirmed after a lot of uh, chit-chat and um, establishing of my bona fides. He thought I'd come to kill him. He, saw his, he, he admitted that he, that he was in British intelligence, he was a very senior officer, involved in all sorts of bits and pieces, and that he, that he Reggie, believed that he had been involved in something very dangerous before his death that had led to his death, and he was one of the first people to tell me that he had no reason to believe that he had committed suicide, which is the first inkling that I had of this. So this money that, 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 that disappeared, uh, now you mentioned Hugh's firm. So was his firm, was this money being deposited by various fronts for British intelligence? Were they, was, he, was his firm I, laundering the I, money? I could never find out. Reggie didn't have any information. Um, one of the things that I will say is I spoke to a number of intelligence agents Richard, I've been doing interviews now for a month and a half. You're one of the last on this current sort of series that I'm doing. So I feel more relaxed about letting some things slip. Um, those listeners who want to buy the book Maggie's Hammer, I say this to you. I'm not challenging your intelligence. You're going to have to make up your own minds. I faithfully reproduce in my book what I've been told, what I've been able to gather by grilling people, um, what I've been able to unearth myself. But some of it's conflicting. Um... I'm dealing with intelligence agents. They are duplicitous by nature. I'm not entirely certain why some people have spoken to me. I think it's sometimes a crisis of conscience for them. I think, I hope I've managed to convince them that I, I've got no agenda other than the fact I want to find the truth. Sometimes I, uh, um, they have told me things that are out and out lies. I've been able to prove that they're lies. Uh, sometimes I think I've been used. Um, and, but through it all, where I've been able to corroborate one piece of information with another, I have a little nugget, and I hang on to that nugget. So sometimes I'm not entirely sure why I've been told what I've been told. Reggie says that he got his information from people within British intelligence. His story, if you read Maggie's Hammer, you will understand this, changed completely. And he says that's because what he was being told changed. He too was being used. There is something very deep and dark at the heart of all of this. I, I may have found some of it, but I'm not entirely sure that I found all of it, which is one of the reasons why I'm publishing the book, because I'm looking for people out there to help. However, he did say he believed that he was involved in an operation. He believed he died because of that operation. It was Reggie's view and remains Reggie's view that Hugh did not go out to that woodland glade to commit suicide. He went out to that woodland glade to meet with someone who was going to spirit him out of the country. According to Reggie, he had $3 million on him in cash, and um, the person double-crossed him, and he was killed. Um, we have no proof for that. That's simply Reg Reggie's information from, in from inside British intelligence. 
After that, Reggie pretty much um, didn't want to talk to me anymore. Um, I spent several years researching as much as I possibly could. If you go to the bibliography in Maggie Sam, you'll find about 350 pay, 50 books that I read, trying to find any circumstances that would match what Reggie had told me about events that he may have been involved in in Eastern Europe and or in the Lebanon. Um, eventually, that tra- I mean, every time I found anything that m- might possibly have fit the circumstances, I wrote to the author, contacted them, telephoned them, whatever. And eventually, I contacted an Israeli intelligence officer called Ari ben Menashe, who is quite well-known and controversial, and wrote to him and said, I read your book. Um, there's something in here that could fit the circumstances. I don't think Hugh had anything to do with arms dealing in Iraq, but maybe he did. Ari contacted me two days later by telephone in Atlanta, Georgia, and said, funny thing, I got your name's friend on a list. Uh, we uh, have been, this list is of people we believe were involved in arms dealing with Iraq. We were interested in them. This name never meant anything to us before until you contacted us. Now we're looking into it. I went to meet with him twice in Montreal, and that's when I discovered the full extent of the arms dealing that he had been engaged in on behalf of Mrs. Thatcher. I'm kind of drawing to a close here because I'm just wondering if we're about to come to a break. We are. We, we are. <laughs> okay. and, and thank you for your, your ter- terrific uh, broadcasting acumen and <laughs> making my job easier. <laughs> but let me, uh, as we head into a break, let me um, ask you this. Uh, here we are, late 80s. The, the Cold War is drawing to a close. Uh, yeah. We're just a couple of years away from the uh, the the, uh, the wall collapsing, the, the Soviet Union uh, imploding, or so we're told. Um, but in light of that, and 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 what's going on? Why would, why should we be surprised? Uh, I mean, we, we'd be surprised if we, we knew one of our intimate friends or or, or a good an acquaintance was involved in in this. But should we be surprised, uh, for example, that uh, MI5 or MI6 is cooperating with the CIA and and uh, uh, involved in arms? I mean, you know, we we know about the. Uh, the um, Iran-Contra and, and all of these things that were going on. Why would we be surprised by this story? Uh, I mean, unless it happened to somebody that we knew personally. Well, that's a very good question. And I, I think the answer probably is um, we're not surprised. Um, and my story isn't, isn't, isn't really, and I'll be very honest, my story isn't about trying to surprise people. It is trying to set it in a human context. Um, I'm an ordinary guy. My, I thought my friend was a reasonably ordinary, ordinary guy, although we were involved in politics. And one day he turns up dead, and I follow a trail, and I find myself in the very heart of something, which we read about in newspapers, but we don't expect to be happening to our very best friend. Um, if that's a story that interests you, the book will interest you. If it doesn't interest you, then it probably won't. However, the one thing that I think will interest you, if that story doesn't interest you, is that where it took me, presents what we, what we believe we know about Eastern Europe, Iran, and Iraq in a very different light. 
All right. Well, we will certainly uh, try to explore that aspect of it as much as we can in the time that remains. Uh, Jeffrey Gilson is with us. The book is Maggie's Hammer. Uh, You were a conservative um, since then, perhaps as a result of this, you've sort of moved left of center. I I have to admit, and this may not earn me many uh, friends, but I was kind of an admirer of of, uh, Maggie. I thought she was exactly what England needed at the time. Uh, And I look around at, you know, certain places in the world and I think, you know, Greece, for example. Wow, they really need a a Maggie Thatcher. Uh, Is... How did your impression of her change? I mean, was she... It sounds to me like she was handled. She was an outsider. My impression of her did change, um, so so much as my priorities changed. Um, And what you... you, It's interesting you make the analogy with Greece, because that's pretty much where the new take on what happened in the 80s and since comes in. Because, and I didn't know this until I started. I mean, Harry says, yeah, your friend was dealing an arms deal. Your friend was uh, heavily involved in a small team of people around Margaret Thatcher, engaged, amongst other things, in arms dealing and laundering money back to Margaret Thatcher. And I, I'm, I approach most of the stuff rather skeptically, and I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Whatever you think of Margaret Thatcher, she was three times elected prime minister of Great Britain. She's an icon. You may hate her, you may love her, but she's an icon. I can't really believe that she would soil her hands with money from arms kickback. I said, is that really it? And he said, no, there's a lot more to it. And he helped me to understand what there was about it. And indeed, I, through him, I met other people who painted a bigger picture. And the picture was essentially this. In 1979, when Margaret Thatcher first came to power, Great Britain was Greece. Uh, mm-hmm. We indeed, were bankrupt. Yes. Sorry? Yes, no, I was just saying, indeed, I, yes. I agree, yes. I mean, we, we, were, we were bankrupt. Um, our public finances uh, were out of money, our military was out of money, our intelligence services were out of money, our, our industry was on its knees. And the first thing that Margaret Thatcher did was turn British industry around by literally turning plowshares into swords and focusing the attention of British industrialists on making arms. And Britain is now the number five arms exporter in the world, which may not sound very good, but we're a very small country. Um, at the time, we were not the number five arms, arms exporter in the world. One in five of every Britain that is employed is now employed either directly or indirectly with the arms industry. It's huge in Great Britain. Um, to the extent that the trade union movement, which is uh, admittedly socialist, supports the arms trade because it provides so many uh, jobs for its members. And we are just one big arms industry. Um, in the 80s, when, when, when she was expanding the arms industry, the biggest clients for Great Britain's arms were in the Middle East. There was a war raging between Iran and Iraq. It lasted between 18 and 1988. Uh, they, both countries were embargoed by the United Nations from receiving uh, offensive military technology. So we just sold it to them by the back door. And that's one of the most important things I discovered about the arms industry, I didn't realize this, which is that if you're serious about selling arms to the world, you can't just sell to the nice people, and you can't just sell by the front door. You need a back door. And what Ari Ben-Manashi made clear to me over many, many conversations was, he was a primary part of the team of people that Margaret Thatcher put together to service that back door. And his a special talent was money laundering. He had basically three things going for him. He knew Margaret Thatcher well, he was a lawyer who was trained in money laundering, and he was a senior officer in British intelligence. 
To which you add one other thing, that he was just slightly off the radar, so nobody noticed him. Which is why, when I went to see Ari, he said, we had his name, but it didn't mean anything to us. And as soon as you, we, we put that name together with our facts, we realized that he was a primary um, author of the various pipelines that were set up in the 80s to launder money back to politicians in Great Britain and elsewhere. All right, Jeffrey, we'll take a time out. Jeffrey, we could okay. call you perhaps the man who knew too much. When we come back, more of Maggie's Hammer right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Uh, Jeffrey Gilson stays with us. Uh, the book is called Maggie's Hammer, uh, and it's a it's a murder mystery, uh, which leads into another world of illegal arms deals, political slush funds, high-level corruption, Britain's 30-year secret role as America's hired gun. That's an interesting uh, uh, aspect that I'd like to explore. Britain's 30-year secret role as America's hired gun. I mean, that's that's really, you know, the, the, the story of James Bond, isn't it? I mean... Well... Yeah, yes, it is. It is, Richard, and it's a little bit difficult to believe. Um, I'm, I, during the course of doing these interviews, people, people have said much the same thing as you. Who cares? What's new? What's different? And I, I don't pretend um, that I'm saying anything new or anything different overall. I have a story. I'm telling it. Um, I'm trying to find the truth. And the reason I'm publishing at the moment is because I'm, I need help from people in trying to get to the truth about, about Hugh Simmons. Where we had got to, where I had got to, in talking with Ari ben Menashe and people who led from him, is the Margaret Thatcher was expanding the arms industry in Great Britain in the 80s. Um, in order to do that, she needed to have a back door, and Hugh was a part of the team that she put together to service that back door. Um, she expanded the arms industry primarily by helping to organize arms deals through to Iraq and Iran. People say, yeah, okay, we know about Iran-Contra. Actually, you do know about Iran-Contra. Iran-Contra was a sideshow. It was a deliberate setup. Um, uh, the Israelis set up Oliver North to take the fall. He sold about a billion dollars worth of completely useless arms to Iran. Um, useless because they were all stamped with the Israeli defense industry logo. It was a sideshow, while the real pipeline, called the Blue Pipeline, was being organized through London on behalf of the United States, totaling some $80 billion in arms. Same time, Great Britain was at the center of arming Iraq. Um, I am told by Ari and others that Hugh Simmons was a major cog in the machine laundering the money back from those arms deals into, into London. Now, I didn't discover this overnight. This took 27 years. And believe you me, I was skeptical every inch of the way. This is my best friend. I have absolutely no idea that this was going on. Yes, there were large periods of time when he wasn't around, but I had no idea this was going on and going on in London. Um, but at the same time as Margaret Thatcher was doing that with the arms industry, um, she was faced with the military and an intelligence services who had helped to get to power, but who were themselves short of money. So she literally, in the 80s, started pimping them out to the United States in order that the United States could conduct certain of its covert foreign policy abroad away from congressional oversight. Anyone who's read the history of the 70s and the 80s will know that after the 70s, with the CIA scandals, um, the American intelligence activity was very heavily um, under the scrutiny of Congress. Using a surrogate like Great Britain allowed all sorts of things like arms deals and um, covert activities to take place without the scrutiny of Congress. Again, I, 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 I heard this. I... 
I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I went back to my British sources. Um, and Reggie, uh, in, in a very strange and surreal conversation, told me, uh, quite bluntly, uh, when I was living in Atlanta, that Hugh had been trained to kill. And that one of the uh, services he undertook, in addition to money laundering, was actually um, removing people who were um, in the way of what Great Britain was trying to do for America. Now, again, you may not believe this. You don't have to believe it. Buy the book, read it, make up your own mind. Well, I, I believe um, it 100%. I believe it. Because one of the things that, that it's interesting that that, that uh, happened after the uh, – I mean, the, the, I think the Cold War was, you know, winding down before the the, uh, the Iron Curtain fell, and and yeah. so what happened is a lot of these intel services, the CIA, and I'm sure MI5, MI6, they were no longer spying in in East Germany. They had to find something to do, and in many cases, they were hired uh, by private corporations to spy on other corporations. So they became hired guns. Uh, and so this fits perfectly in, in, into into what you're saying. It wasn't necessarily about you know let's let's spy on the Russians anymore. Well, uh, let's go ahead. That's a very important point, Richard, because um, one of the things that people have said to me is, okay, well, this is a fascinating spy story based in the 80s. Um, one of the things I've learned, uh, and I've learned this the hard way, is that if you want to understand what's going on in the world in the 90s, in the noughts, in the teens. Um, and it's the same countries, it's Russia, it's Ukraine, it's Eastern Europe, it's Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. If you want to understand what is going on there now, and goodness knows sometimes we don't understand, all roads lead back to uh, the 80s, and most of the roads lead through London. I didn't realize this, but they really do. Um, this activity began in the 80s, it continued into the 90s. One of the big questions I know that Americans had uh, in, in 2003 is why on earth was a supposedly upstanding left-wing British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, figuratively in bed with George Bush and involved in the invasion of Iraq? Um, no one suggests that Tony Blair and Great Britain provided um, much by way of military support to George, George Bush. What he did provide was credibility. Why? Why would he do it? And the answer is because the Americans knew where the skeletons were hidden. We'd been doing their dirty work for so long, we couldn't stop. And it wasn't just the overt stuff that was going on in 2003, it was the covert stuff. And that covert stuff is still going on now with ISIS in Syria. Um, America can't be seen to be arming some of the opposition groups in Syria, which aren't ISIS, but Great Britain can. And just recently Seymour Hersh wrote an article saying, Britain is covertly supplying uh, the opposition group known as al-Nusra, on behalf of America. These networks, as you say, they continue. The arms deals continue. And you say, well, okay, so what? Um, if you have a country like Great Britain, which is massively dependent on the arms industry, and its politicians are dependent upon arms kickbacks, then without wanting to use terms like military-industrial complex, which annoy me, um, you definitely have a country that's not interested in peace, um, it has something else going on. And many of the arms deals that we uh, undertook in the 90s and the noughts, America is now undertaking itself because Congress has loosened the knot somewhat. If there was massive corruption associated with British arms deals, there's no reason to believe that there hasn't mass massive arms corruption associated with, for instance, the $40 billion deal between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Same countries, same people, same things happening. 
And this is affecting the foreign policy of America. And if you go back to the 80s and you work your way forward, perhaps by reading my book, Maggie's Hammer, you will begin to understand some of the things that are going on that don't make any sense. All right. And as Smedley Butler said, war is indeed a racket. You want to make arms, you need customers. How do you get customers? You foment conflict. Back with more of Jeffrey Gilson, Maggie's Hammer, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Jeffrey Gilson stays with us. Maggie's Hammer is the book, and Jeffrey uh, has been uh, active uh, formerly in the British Conservative Party before pursuing a commercial career in public relations, and he's here discussing his investigation into the mysterious death of his friend, which uncovered another world of illegal arms deals, political slush funds, high-level corruption, and Britain's 30-year secret role as America's hired gun. You mentioned Tony Blair, and it's interesting that the names change, the parties that occupy number 10 uh, change, but the uh, the uh, the MO remains the same, which tends to suggest uh, that there is sort of this uh, permanent national security state uh, that is in power, whether it's in London or Washington. I mean, we often accuse countries like Syria of being a national security state. Uh, but really, it, 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 I mean, is that the takeaway here that, you know, that it, really politics, ideology has nothing to do with this? Well, Richard, I, I, I hate to use words like conspiracy theory and military-industrial complex, but um, those of your listeners who, who follow some of the foreign news will know that in Great Britain just recently, um, there was a bit of an upset when the leadership of the Labour Party was undertaken, and a rank outsider, kind of like Bernie Sanders, took over. The, the, the Brits like to describe him as a hard-left politician called Jeremy Corbyn. Within days of his taking over, and this caught even Britons by surprise. Um, leaders of, 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 of um, Britain's army, Britain's military, released a press statement saying that um, if Jeremy Corbyn became prime minister, they would feel duty-bound to take steps to remove him. This is the British army. At the same time, leaders of British intelligence services said they would feel they would not, they would not have to share intelligence with Jeremy Corbyn because they believed him to be a national security risk. Wow. Um, this <laughs> has never happened before. No one... The, the London Guardian newspaper, a respected national newspaper, for the very first time started talking about military-industrial complex. They were shattered that people were talking like this because in the last 30 years, um, so much of the nation's economy has become dependent upon its military and intelligence services and upon the arms industry, that much as we may not like to use the terms, they pretty much run the show. And that's why Tony Blair did what he did. And if you, uh, and I've taken the time to, to look at David Cameron's government, some of the people in David Cameron's government are people I know. We started off in politics at the same time. And some of the people who are involved in his government now are people who, um, I discovered were intimately associated with the um, less salubrious aspects of British arms industry back in the 80s and the 90s. So it's still happening. Politicians come and go, the color comes, it may change, but what is in, in place is still happening. Um, one of the things I mentioned is that I don't know everything, that's why I've published the book now. I'm hoping there are people who will read it and maybe may see a name they recognize or circumstances they understand. I am learning new twists all the time. 
um, as we draw close to the top of the hour, I'll tell you one devastating twist that I came to me just just in the last couple of weeks as a result of doing these interviews, because I simply hadn't thought about it before. Ari ben Menashe was my primary Israeli uh, intelligence source. I met him. I had dinner with his wife. I kind of like the guy. Um, he's a bit of a rogue, but I kind of like him. He describes himself as a bad person. Well, of course he is. He's a, he's a spook. Um, he began by saying to me that he knew of Hugh Simmons because he was a name on a list. And in, after a couple of years of speaking with him, I finally confronted him in a hotel in Montreal and said, I, I think you're lying to me. Well, along with not turning up on people's doorsteps, do not tell a spook that they're lying. Uh, they get very unhappy about that, and you start counting the number of stories in the hotel that you're up because you're wondering how fast you're going to hit. It is, it's going to take how long it's going to take before you hit the ground. Um, well, anyway, so he, he froze and said, "Why do you say that?" And I said, "Because the stuff you're telling me, you couldn't tell me unless you actually knew Hugh Simmons." And he said, "Okay, I I knew him." Well, that's not what you've been saying up till now. Okay, well, I knew him, but he was, you know, with a smile. He said he was using a different name. Well. Ari kind of went quiet on me for, for 20 years after that, and he got back in touch with me when I came time to publish the book and very kindly provided a quote on the back, which was not something he told me before, which was that, um, um, that um, Hugh had been responsible for laundering money back from arms deals in Iraq to the Conservative Party and from arms deals in Iran to the Labour Party which um, I hadn't known, and I put this to Ari, I said, that's not what you told me before, and he said, well, I'm telling you now. And I went back and looked at some bits and pieces that I hadn't really thought about, because the name, was just a name on a list. And in rereading re Ari's book, um, I reminded myself that in 1986, Ari was specifically tasked by the Prime Minister of Israel, according to him, if you can believe it, Yitzhak Shamir, with stopping the flow of arms to Iraq. And Ari had gone around the world talking to various people that I hadn't taken any interest in because they didn't figure in what I was doing and uh, uh, investigating, visiting those people and making sure that they stopped their involvement in the supply of arms to Iraq. And according to Ari, some of those people were assassinated. Um, and in uh, the late 1988, according to Ari in his book, various assassination squads were sent into Europe to remove people and take them out if they were involved in the arms sales to Iraq. Well, I know it sounds stupid because why didn't this occur to me before? Guys, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't have all the answers. I just, one guy trying to find out the answers. But I realized that that's the same time Hugh had turned up dead. And it occurred to me that if, if Ari's task was to stop the arms, the selling of arms to Iraq, and he'd known my friend, and he'd known what he was up to, and he'd known that he was supplying arms to Iraq, then did Ari have something to do with right. stopping Hugh exactly. selling arms to Iraq? Now, it might strike your listeners as rather stupid that it hadn't occurred to me before, but Ari is now being published by the same publisher as me. He's a mate, kind of, and he's a primary source. We've been invited to be on radio shows together, but I've had to write to Ari in the last two weeks probably the third stupid thing you shouldn't do, which is write to Israeli intelligence officers in this way and say, I have reason to believe you may be involved with the death of my friend, which you've not told me before. And if we go into a radio show together, we're going to be talking about that. Wow, you are really walking on thin ice, don't you think, Jeffrey? Oh, I should imagine I was walking on rich, 
been nice a long time ago, Richard. But, you know, you do what you have to do. It's a, it's a twisted world, isn't it? Um, I mean, how, how is... It's the real world. It's the real world, indeed. This is what I say to people. When, when people use the word conspiracy, I say, no, it's just real politic. It's the way the world works. It's, you know, the, it's not like there are people with black hats and white hats. Uh, they're all, you know, sort of gradients of the color gray. And in many cases, you know, they're, we're complicit, too, because you can say that there are thugs, but there are thugs. Uh, well, and, and, the, and the other thing, Richard, is that not only is it not white and black, it's not people who look like James Bond. They're people who probably live next door to the people listening to this program. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Body of Lies with Leonardo DiCaprio and Richard uh, Russell Crowe. No, I haven't. Doesn't matter. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio is the dashing guy off in the Lebanon, killing people and wooing the women. And Russell Crowe is his controller, who's sitting um, back in America with a headset much like I'm wearing here. And throughout the movie... He's taking his kids to school, chatting away to Leonardo. Yeah, he could take the shot now. He's off, he's, he's off shopping, he's doing the laundry, he's mowing the lawn. And folks, that's what intelligence officers are like. They're ordinary people. They're living next door to you. If my story means anything to you, it is that if there's things going on around you that don't make sense, the chances are they don't make sense. If there's people around you that don't make sense, the chances are they don't make sense. Um... Don't leave it to other people to investigate. Investigate yourself, because these are ordinary people with mortgages and kids, but these ordinary people are conducting your foreign policy, and you have a right to know what's going on. People wonder why I'm still doing this after 27 years. Yeah, I still want to find out the truth for his family. His kids are no longer kids, they're grown up. But actually, I've become kind of angry um, when... Things go on in the Middle East that we don't understand. They're being undertaken by people who are supposed to represent us. And we deserve a government that's as decent as we are. And the only way we can get a government that's as decent as we are is by finding the things that don't make sense and worrying them like a dog worries a bone. Are you, at all, are you at all angry um, at your friend, Hugh John Simmons? That is a very good question, Richard, because most people say I should be angry at Harry, and I'm not angry at Harry. Harry was doing his job. I am angry with my mate. He should never have got involved in this. He had three small children. Um, he got involved for whatever reasons he got involved. To make money, I don't know. But his family never had a vote. And that is also why I'm angry at the British government. And uh, if you read my book, you'll find out some of the interesting conversations I've had with... Uh, very senior civil servants in Great Britain. I'm angry with them because at the time of his death, officially or unofficially, he was acting on behalf of the British Prime Minister. His family was left destitute. That's wrong. And when you read headlines about, you know, the, the war on terror and the threat from ISIS and what's going on, this quagmire in Syria and, and, and Iraq and, and uh, you know, nuclear discussions with Iran... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that you, you, you just can't, you can't read those, those stories or accounts with a straight face because you have this behind-the-scenes view of the world now. Um, so, so say that again? I'm just wondering how you view sort of the, you know, the, the various um, – the crisis in the Middle East and the, 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 the war on terror and, and uh, the, the, the supposed threat posed by ISIS. I mean, knowing what you now know about the way the world works and how – you know, uh, uh, one, one, of, one, of, one of the fright, 
one of the frightening things is, is, is reading what's going on in the headlines, and I never thought I would end up being this person, because I always thought it was those strange people over there. But the strange thing is that I read the headlines, and I know what's going on behind the headlines, and that's kind of frightening. Um, it's like, uh-huh, yeah, I, I, I speak with my friends, and I say, okay, this is what you're reading in the newspapers, but actually, these people... This goes back to the 80s, it goes back to the 90s, the Brits were doing this, the Americans were doing the other, and that's why this is happening. The next thing that's going to happen is the other, and it happens. And they say, how did you know? I said, I really wish I didn't know. But that's one of the um, byproducts of engaging in this, to the extent that I did have done, and with the intensity that I have done, is you learn stuff you don't want to know, and you understand stuff that you you, you really don't want to know. And there's no going back. Jeffrey Gilson... Ah. uh, there's no going back. In fact, there's no going back to Europe because I'm told it's not a safe place for me to be. Uh, I can imagine. Well, stay safe, and thank you for this. Maggie's Hammer, Jeffrey Gilson. Great meeting you, Thank Jeffrey. you, Richard. Thank you. Uh, thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert Finzel, and we'll be back brand, a brand new show next week. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.